This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, and you're listening to Southern Fried True Crime. Today we have a special episode. I had a chat with author Patrick Bowmaster about his book, What the Little Dog Witnessed about a scandalous historical murder that happened in Arkansas in 1905. Patrick is a freelance historian and writer who has written for both scholarly and popular audiences and has been published widely. His writing has been cited in at least 30 historical works. His unpublished research and graduate student writing can be found in the collections of several leading research universities and other prominent libraries. Patrick is a career archivist who holds master's degrees in both library and information science and history. He's a native New Yorker, but he now lives in Massachusetts with his family. I love reading about historic crime, and I really enjoyed Patrick's book, What the Little Dog Witnessed. So sit back, get you a cold drink, and I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Hi, Patrick, and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be interviewed by you today. Well, I'm so excited. I loved your book, What the Little Dog Witnessed. How did you come across this story? That's an interesting story. I uh, am a fan of a podcast called The True Crime Historian. It's produced by Richard O. Jones and his company, Popular Media. And just for any of your listeners who are not aware... He offers dramatic readings of news coverage of true crimes, and most of the crimes are, I would say, the first half of the 20th century, but he does, I think he did dip back as far as, say, the late 1700s. And again, I would recommend it to your listeners. It's fascinating. They're dramatic readings of the news coverage, and he adds music, which original music, which adds a lot to the show. He has some sound effects, and he sometimes uses voice actors. And he has, Richard O. Jones has such a flair for the dramatic. It's so entertaining. The episodes really come across almost like an old-time radio play. It is really fun. And we follow each other on Twitter. That's how I found him. No, that's great. That's really cool. And that's how you came across the story? I did. Normally, the way his episodes work, again, for anyone who's not familiar, is that he'll read a series of articles on one subject. So what's fascinating about it is that if you think back in the day when there was no TV news or internet or even radio news, when people were following a big crime, you know, I imagine they would race to the newsstand every day to read the latest developments. So what he'll do is he'll read a series of articles on a single crime, and you read how you learn how the story is developed 
from day to day. And just a good example that he's done, I think he's done five installments on Lizzie Borden. And it's really oh, been amazing yeah. to read about how people follow the crime. And you get details that you don't get in history books. Like I know one of the details that was really fascinating was that when Lizzie burned that dress, which for anyone who's familiar with the crime, I'm certain it was a bloody dress. That's why she burned the evidence. She claimed there was paint on it. I mean, who, who burns a dress because it has paint on it? You just throw it out. Uh, I read a huge research paper on her in college. I think I'm <laughs> as fascinated as you are. Isn't it great? So anyway, they one of the articles, they said a little detail that she claims she buried the dress in the backyard. And that's so fascinating because I'm curious whether anyone has ever done a, an archaeological dig on the property, which I visited. It's a great museum to visit if, if anyone ever travels up in, in my neck of the woods. It's, it's a wonderful place. It's a bed and breakfast now, but you can tour the house even if you're not staying. It's I would recommend it. But anyway, I know I digress a little bit, but also he also has episodes where he just reads one article on a single crime and he'll do four different articles on four different crimes. One of the articles that really gripped me was one he did that, again, it was it was a series of, of different crimes. There was one article on a Arkansas murder conspiracy that played out in 1905. And the amazing, most incredible thing about it that I thought was the role that a little dog had in the story. And I know people, I would say people, a lot of people love animals, especially dogs, and people love true crime. And I said, this is a story that people will love. I mean, I, I've been writing history uh, for a long time. I've, this is my first book. I've written a lot of articles. I've always had a, a nose for a good story. And I said, you, you put together an animal, an amazing animal, and true crime, you're going to have a successful book. And I said, I have to research this. And it's funny. I remember exactly what I was doing, where I was when I heard this story. It just gripped me. So I started researching it, and I found that it was even more fascinating than I would have imagined because the backstory was so incredible. The people involved were just so interesting. And I kept uncovering more and more layers of the story and, and just layers of the onion, whatever that expression is. And when I was finally finished, I ended up with a manuscript that was Way too large for a periodical. It was, I guess you could say, probably three times the size of a magazine feature. And that was my original thought would be a magazine article. But it wasn't long enough to publish as a full-length book. So I, I had to find a creative way to publish it. And I remember that Richard O. Jones, who also you know, is responsible for True Crime Historian the podcast, publishes a $2 Terra True Crime ebook series. And I said to myself, well, you know, I was inspired by his show. There's a, a built-in market for this story with people who have heard his show. Why don't I contact him and maybe I convince him to publish it? So I sent him an email and, and I told him that I was inspired by his show to research the article. I gave him some information on my background. He said, submit it. I sent it to him. Within two days, he said, I want to publish it. And I was happy as could be. That's really great. If you don't mind, I looked up Richard's bio. I was going to give that really quick for our listeners. He's an award-winning retired career journalist and lecturer. He's also an established author himself, and he operates a website as well as that podcast you mentioned, True Crime Historian. And I love the idea of the $2 terrors. That is just really so cool. And I can't believe I hadn't heard of it until you contacted me. But tell me a little bit more about that. I think it's very interesting because he wants to branch out and publish fiction too. And I can't speak for fiction because that's not a talent I have. I admire it very much, but I can speak for nonfiction. What he's looking to, and he wants to expand his stable of authors, I could say, 
He's looking for submissions that are within approximately, I think it was 8,000 to 16,000 words. So that's, you know, standard font, standard margins. You're talking about between, say, like 32 and, and 64 pages, including bibliography and footnotes, etc. And I'm not aware that there's another outlet for that type of thing out there. So I think it's really a great thing he's doing. He's providing an outlet for manuscripts, which with otherwise wouldn't get published. And again, it's things that you know are too big for a periodical, but not large enough to publish in softcover or hardcover. And I'm so fortunate that he wanted to publish mine. And I'm hoping there are a lot of talented authors out there with good manuscripts who will contact them and submit manuscripts and, and we can grow the family, so to speak. I think that's just so interesting. And I love the ease and the pricing of it's kind of like short stories, but in longer form. And it's like you said, it would be a great long form in a magazine, but you would probably have to do it over a series. But I love this idea. It reminds me of almost like Penny Dreadfuls, but bigger. Can you tell us what you're working on now? I understand it's something very close to your heart. I am. I should say when I first wrote this book, you know, I considered submitted to a periodical and, and, and I, there's a particular periodical and I'm really embarrassed. I forget the name. You know, I did my research. It's one of the most prestigious and highest paying in the country. And I figure why not aim high? You know, the worst you get is a rejection notice and, and all writers have gotten them. You know, I looked at it and I realized that what they publish are really personal, very powerful stories published in the first person. Right. You know, I thought about it and I said, I have an incredible one to tell. I've actually changed my mind decide I want to devote to a, actually stretch into a book, but I'll tell the story. My uncle lost his life serving in the Air Force in 1958. And my uncle was kind of like the golden boy of my family. This is on my mom's side. And everyone in that side of the family, all the siblings were very talented. My mom, they were all born, say, in the 1930s, and all four of them went to college, which is pretty incredible for that time to put four children and two girls to college in the 1930s. I mean, now it's you know a lot more common. My mom had a very successful professional career. She was worked for, was a civil servant her whole life. My aunt was a, a New York City school teacher. My other uncle, Bill, was a very successful business executive. So all of the, the Schmidt children, that was the family, were very talented, smart, hard workers. But one thing they all agreed on is that my uncle Harry was the one who is going to go the furthest in life because he was the most uh, versatile. And my mom, the way my mom describes it is he could do anything. And that's really not an exaggeration. When he was a young kid, he was a yo-yo champion. It's funny, back then, that was the thing for kids. You know, I guess today it's, you know, video games. But when he grew up, you know, I said he was born in 1935, that was the thing. And, and I have a whole bunch of patches he won for local yo-yo championships. And my mom said he could just do incredible things with the yo-yo. And he was so smart that he was skipped ahead in school. He always got the best of grades. He was a self-taught musician. He had a, a beautiful singing voice. He was just an incredible person. And he was accepted into Queens College. Back then, Queens College was free, but the catch was only the best students were admitted. He was very competitive. And he had, of course, incredible grades he got in. His grades as a student were fabulous. And the thing is, he decided to go into ROTC. And he was a very patriotic person, but it wasn't the Air Force wasn't a career for him. It was mainly a financial thing. The family had money troubles, and he looked at it as a way to get some money coming in while he was a student, because as a junior and senior, he would be actually be paid to go to school and, and be a ROTC cadet. And then after graduation, he would have a guaranteed job for three years in the Air Force. But his plan was never to stay. 
ultimately his plan was politics. But when he was in college, he announced to the family that he wanted to go into politics. And no one laughed because he had just never failed at anything. People took him seriously. And about a year before he died, he had decided that he wanted to go to Harvard Law School. And he was about to apply. And I have no doubt he would have got accepted because he had all the qualifications. He had great grades. And unfortunately, he lost his life in a flying accident. He was a navigator in a fighter interceptor. And at the time, the biggest fear that we had in the United States was that the Soviets would attack us with their nuclear bombers. And people like my uncle, their job was to be ready to be scrambled and head up into the sky within a minute's notice and investigate any unidentified plane coming into our airspace. And if it was a nuclear bomber, they would have shoot it down. So it was very dangerous work because they had to fly in all weather and they had to fly at night. And unfortunately, in July of 1958, he was scrambled along with the pilot. My uncle was the navigator. He sat in the backseat. Just if you all remember the movie Top Gun, remember the guys in the backseat? That was him. So they were sent up on a July night. It was pitch dark. And they were sent out over the Atlantic Ocean. They flew off from Dover Air Force Base. And at the time, it was so dark that there was no visual. The sky and the ocean looked exactly the same. So in order to fly, the pilot would have had to keep his eye on the instruments, on the altimeter. And while they were trying to identify this mystery plane, the pilot actually skipped his plane on the top of the ocean. It made a loud noise, and he thought the plane was exploding. So he ordered my uncle to eject. He then tried to eject me and the pilot. And the pilot didn't eject because he had forgotten to pull the safety pin out of his ejection seat. So the plane actually came to a stop in the ocean. The pilot climbed out, inflated his life vest, was picked up at sea. Unfortunately, my uncle didn't make it because back then, ejection seats were very primitive. Today, ejection seats work so well that you could actually sit on the runway in a plane standing still, eject, and a rocket motor will shoot you so high that... There'll be enough time for your parachute to fill with air, and you'll slowly descend. You'll be fine. But back in 1958, the ejection seat only pushed you up high enough so that when the plane passed under you, the tail of the plane didn't hit you and, and kill you. So back then, it was actually an explosive shell which pushed you up, right. and they had to limit the force because if the explosion was too hard and pushing you up would actually break your spine. So to make a long story short, when my uncle ejected, he was, I'm estimating, about 20 feet above the ocean. So there just wasn't enough time for his parachute to open, and he would have hit the water so high, how hard that his neck would have broken instantly. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it was a rough story. It sounds like he was an incredible man, though, and that's going to be a really a great book to read. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Thank you. And there's just so many tragic details. I, I don't want to go on and on. But for example, after he died, it was found out that him and his girlfriend had secretly promised each other they were going to get married. And it was rough. And later on in the summer, they had made plans to introduce his girlfriend to my grandparents for the first time. And when he died, he had had his duffel bag packed because the next day he was going on leave to come home to see my mom and the family. It was just, it, it was such a tragic thing. And my family has never really healed from it. And it's such a rough thing. And just recently, there was a Memorial Day ceremony in his old neighborhood where the American Legion Post honored him and presented my mom with a flag. And it was it was very touching. I was very grateful for what they did. Well, this will be a wonderful tribute and hopefully, you know, healing, maybe a little bit of closure for your family. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope so. I, I definitely want to do it for my mom. 
That's great. I think I need to circle back. We we got excited talking about Richard in the podcast and, and then jumped ahead. Can you tell us a little bit about what the little dog witnessed? I know we don't want to give away everything. You want to just tell me what you're comfortable with? I don't want to spoil the ending. Richard has an amazing knack for engaging the public. It's really quite incredible. So I can't resist reading his description of the book. If you don't mind, I'm just going to do that. Okay. It's so masterful. It's I can do as good. It says, career convict and con artist Ed Hubbard and his accomplice Willie Roberts, a young and attractive prostitute, set out to play a long game against the farmer Pless Burns, who owned the spread on the Spring River in Arkansas. But Willie grows tired of waiting and pressures Hubbard to fix the old man. Even with a backstory of multiple marriages, extramarital affairs, an incompetent judge, an extremely messy divorce, a death sentence, two jailbreaks, incest, a connection to one of the most infamous criminal gangs of the 1930s, three murders, a terrible miscarriage of justice, and two sensational murder trials. The most fascinating part of the story is an amazing and heroic canine. That is so great. I think you had a lot of fun with the dog. And I, I tell you, we were talking a little bit about it earlier, but I am a huge dog lover. My dog is curled up at my feet right now. How did you get the most of your information on Jim? The story was actually, in its time, was covered quite extensively. In my research, I found out that it was covered in no less than 15 states and the District of Columbia and in every region of the nation. So back in 1905, it was you know being read about all over America. Oh, wow. After the conviction of the murderer, the story of Jim was dug up by reporters and published fairly widely. I have I, I found at least six different states the story of Jim was published, and one paper published a photograph of Jim the dog, and another published an artist rendition of him. And the headlines were very interesting. If I could just, you don't mind, I'll read a couple. The St. Louis Dispatch said, Faithful dog avenges the murder of his master by dooming the slayer to death on the gallows. Another one read, Dog convicts a murderer. And yet another one said, Faithful dog of the murdered man displayed great intelligence. I love that. (laughs) I love that a lot. I don't want to give too much else away about the book. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? One thing that, you know, I, I in preparing for the interview, I, I went back and gave a, a lot of thought to it. And one thing that occurred to me that's interesting is that the murderer in this trial, and I say it was a murder conspiracy, was a man named Ed Hubbard, who was really quite interesting. He was an escape artist, and the newspapers referred to him as above average intelligence. And one thing that was interesting, after he was sentenced for the crime, There was a letter that appeared in a local newspaper. The Pocahontas Star carried a letter uh, written by him. And I thought it was very interesting, and I'll just read it. It says, I have often wondered how women loved men, and more times I wondered how men could love women. They will bring men to ruin with a sad downfall. What he's getting out here is what he claimed, and I believe, is that his girlfriend was the ringleader. And I think she pressured him to commit the murder. In some way, the story is something that we see repeated often. It was a story of a, of a young, attractive woman who convinced a very elderly, wealthy widow to enter an arrangement whereby he would divorce his wife, marry her, and make her the heir to his will. Things didn't actually work out the way she planned, and that's where the murder comes about. Yeah, she got a bit impatient. 
She did, yes. But I just thought that quote him was very interesting because he, he was not the, the average criminal by any means. He, not a good man. As I said, he didn't have a moral compass, but he, but he was no dummy. Yeah, but the women don't get enough credit for the <laughs> the bad things they did, too. They are considered the weaker sex, but this just goes to show. Oftentimes, they can also be the mastermind. I think that's very true. There was just an author, I forget, who just published recently, who was saying, he's done a lot of research, she's a woman journalist, and she was saying that, that oftentimes when you look at the criminal justice system, when women and men are charged with the same crime, it happens so often that women will be punished less severely or held to a lower standard. And it's fascinating, you go back to the, you know, the gender roles, which date back to the, the Victorian period, where it's, you know, women were all pure as the driven snow and men were all beasts. And I think and that's one element of this story where the, it was a murder conspiracy, but the, the justice system handled the man involved and the woman involved very differently. Yes, definitely. And I think it really still happens to this day. People have a hard time with the woman being the evil person. I know in one of my episodes, that's a really popular one. It had to do with her youth, but also because she was a beautiful girl. And she's on death row in my state in Tennessee, but it's just so unusual to us even to this day. But I mean, it just goes to show you even back then, you know, and I think that happened a lot more with young women trying to marry older rich men like that. And I have to be a little bit fair here. They didn't have as many choices in life, so you can kind of see why that happened. No, no, I mean, I know, I mean, you're absolutely right, but it, but it's the murder thing in there. That's the little, <laughs> a little bit of a... <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. But you're right. I understand what you mean. You're right. Women didn't have the choices. Yeah. Yeah, I think for the most part, a lot of them just married up or, or tried to, but this is definitely a fascinating story. I could see how you got sucked into it. Well, thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about your blog. I started my blog as a way to promote the book. I just figured it was a good vehicle of promotion because I could draw people to the blog based upon what they search in Google. I could then hopefully have them link back to Amazon. If someone wants to just search my name, Patrick Bowmaster, in Google, and you can find my blog that way. And I just think it's a good way to promote. What I've done is I, I try to put some content on there for, for anyone who might have already been humbled me by purchasing the book. By visiting my blog, you can get some extra content. I have some uh, images of the people that I mentioned in my book on there. I have a, a graphic with the location of the murder. My book doesn't have an index, so I put a full index up there for anyone who's, who's curious you know, what is mentioned. And I just think it's fun. And another thing I did was I, I'm certain it happens with everyone who writes a book is that after you publish, there's always some new information that comes to light. Oh, yeah. You just hope that it's nothing that will change the basic premise of the interpretation of your book. Right. I mean, I've had that happen with an, in an hour-long podcast. I've just days later, I have to record a little update and insert it back into it. Happens, it. And it, right. it just happens. So in my case, there was nothing earth-shattering, but someone did actually find for me a land deed, which would search some land that the man who was murdered in my book purchased. It was also brought to my attention another newspaper article that had another quote from the killer. So I posted them up there. So just some extra content for anyone who's interested. I think it's fun. And just speaking of people who listen to your podcast, I have to thank everyone because the book has done very well. And after you were kind enough to allow me to make a post about my book on the Facebook user group connected to your site. It shot back up the bestseller list within my category. I think it was up to 22. Oh, that's great. So your show has a lot of juice, as they say. 
Well, thank you. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Yeah, my listeners really enjoy the the author interviews. So I was excited to do this. And that's that's really thank good to you. hear. I appreciate that. And again, I thank so much everyone who listens who bought the book because it wouldn't have went up that high and unless a lot of your fans bought it. I thank everyone. I'm, I'm humbled and flattered. Well, you're very welcome. And we appreciate your writing. That was very interesting. And I will be encouraging everybody to go out and check it out again after this. Thank you. What else would you like to tell me about today? Uh, yes, actually, one more thing. Something else that I thought was very interesting is that in researching my book, I did quite a bit of research on the sheriff, who I guess you could say is the hero of my story, who cracked the case and arrested both of the people involved in the murder conspiracy. And doing Google searches, I discovered when doing research on the sheriff who cracked the case that I write about, actually, he arrested one of the two people involved in the murder conspiracy. I found out that about 69 years after the sheriff's death, the Iberia Bank in Pocahontas, Arkansas, handed over to the Arkansas State Auditor a safe deposit box that had belonged to the sheriff. I mean, I know there's a law in Arkansas. I'm sure there is. It probably is in every state where safe deposit boxes, if they don't get access or claimed after a certain amount of years, someone has to seek out the descendant of the person. And the state of Arkansas actually located a grandson of the sheriff and presented him with the box. And it turned out to be a treasure trove of uh, hundreds of historical documents. And in there were things like family, financial, and legal papers, correspondence, and records connected to his work as a sheriff and a state lawmaker because he went on to be a politician. And what I did was I took the grandson's name, who was in some of the articles I found on the web about the story, typed him into Google. I found that he was a dentist. Well, that was easy. Uh, through Facebook, I found his practice. And I called him up, and his wife, who was his office worker, actually answered and put him right on the phone. And it's funny because, you know, I imagine in my mind here, I'm calling up on a Saturday and and he's leaving a patient to come talk to me. So anyway, I spoke to him, and I explained to him what I was doing and what I was researching on, and he actually ended up sending me photocopies of several documents that were in the safe deposit box that he used in my book. Oh, wow, that's so generous. It was terrific. He turned out to be a really nice gentleman who was a fascinating guy in his own right. But the sheriff himself was a fascinating guy. He was illiterate until he was 20. Wow. He was so poor that he was denied an education. He had to work from a young age. And he married, and his wife actually taught him how to read and write. Then he ran for sheriff, and was elected sheriff a year before my story starts. And he ended up reading for the bar, becoming a lawyer, becoming a state prosecutor, and a state politician. And he had an amazing life. And one of the things I mentioned in my book is, at that time period, to do what he did, to go from someone who was born in the worst poverty and was illiterate, and actually to have an incredible career as a prosecutor and a politician and a sheriff, it's the type of story that's really only possible or was only possible at the time in the United States. And he's a figure which I think someone should ride on. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but someone should ride on that sheriff. His name was William A. Jackson. Fascinating guy, and, and, and I cover him in my book. I was going to say, it sounds like you've, you've really got a good start on him. I'll take it and run with it. He does sound incredibly interesting to overcome all that and have such a life. Oh, thank you. I think so. I agree. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Patrick, I'm going to wrap it up for today. And I'd love to have you on the show again next time you publish a book. We'll have you back on. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, as I said, I, I'm humbled and honored that your listeners were kind enough to buy my book. 
And I'm also humbled and honored that you were kind enough to invite me on your show. Uh, your show is terrific. I love it. And if I could just close by saying I, I respect what you do very much because I think podcasting is a bomb that's going to explode the world and make it into something better because no longer are middlemen and middlewomen who are business people standing in the way of contact providers. People like you are producing really great shows. You're delivering them directly to the public with no one censoring you. And I think it's great what you're doing. And I love your show. And I look forward to listening to your show more in the future. Well, thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. I really appreciate it. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Same here. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. You too. Southern Fraud True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fraud's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Special thanks to Patrick Bowmaster for sending me an early review copy of his book and for taking the time to speak with me. It was such a pleasure. As always, if you enjoyed the show, tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on Stitcher and many other apps. If you're interested in supporting the show, come check out my Patreon page or my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com, where you can make a one-time donation by just hitting the donate button. I also have a merchandise store open at whatamaneuver.net. If you have any comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email me at southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, and I'm always looking for new cases, so please feel free to reach out. I'm also all over social media. Just search the show name in your favorite platform if you'd like to connect with me there. If you're interested in discussing today's interview or any other episodes further, come check out my discussion group. It's linked to my main Facebook page. I would love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. 
Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.